It's Friday, March 15th, 2013. Welcome to episode 11 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. Hi, I'm Jeff Eaton, Senior Architect at Lullabot and your host for Insert Content Here. Uh, today, I'm here with Daniel Jacobson, the the illustrious Daniel Jacobson. Um, he he's not necessarily someone that you that you may have uh, seen in in content circles or nerding out in in the CMS world that much, but he's actually one of the uh, one of the movers and shakers. Uh, and as his role was his role for quite a few years was the director of application development at NPR, and he uh, oversaw the development of uh, Cope, their uh, create once publish everywhere um, infrastructure that's uh, made all kinds of waves in the content strategy and CMS world. Um, he's the author of O'Reilly and Associates APIs: A Strategy Guide, and uh, he's also the uh, now he's the director of engineering for the Netflix API. So uh, he is just all over the place when it comes to um, content APIs and uh, reusable content and structure. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Daniel, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thanks for that uh, very nice intro. <laughs> Uh, well, it, you know, it's funny. I, I was actually reading your blog uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, you talked about a presentation that you had done at a conference on uh, the COPE architecture. And uh, you said, wow, you know, a, a bunch of people in the room knew about it. And, you know, they, they were they were familiar with it. And uh, it, it seemed like you were, you were almost a little startled by that. It, did you expect the, the work that, that you were doing on that project to become such a a, a big discussion topic? You know, I really didn't. Um, we had been working, this goes back to the time of NPR, we'd been working on these concepts and implementations since 2002. I can give you the history on that if, if you're interested. But, um, you know, we were just doing what we thought was right, you know, uh, thinking about architecture, thinking about longevity of application development, and, um, you know, knowing that there are going to be a host of things that we're not going to be aware of down the road, so trying to prepare for nimbleness. Um, so then, you know, in 2009, that's when I first published that blog post on Programmable Web about COPE. Um, I was just, you know, taking the step of, okay, we've done all this stuff. In the spirit of sharing, let's share it. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see how, you know, some people latched onto it. But what really has surprised me is, we're in 2013. Um, people are still talking about it. Um, it's it's mind-boggling for me. And if you look at the blog post, um, over half of the the comments were from 2012, and there are I don't know 70 or 80 comments. Um, so what's really kind of staggering for me is the fact that um, we published it in 2009. We've been thinking of it for a number of years and implementing it for for that time, but it's still or it is now resonating. Um, very weird. <laughs> well, I'll I'll back up for a second for for those for for anybody who might not be familiar. Uh, um, what is Cope? Um, you know, what, what what's the idea behind it? Okay, um, I'll give you a little bit of the history on how we arrived at Cope and some of the, the sensibilities that went into it. But Cope stands for Create uh, Once, Publish Everywhere, and the idea there is you know you want to maximize your um, or leverage the content creation and 
minimize the effort to distribute. Um, and the way this whole thing really started, this goes back a little deeper, um, was actually in 2002 when we, uh, we had a series of content, um, ways of publishing content to NPR.org. And we had uh, HTML files, we had uh, a cold fusion system with a SQL Server database that published very thin radio pieces to the, to the web. And then I had built this other system, a Java-based system with an Informix database to capture a little bit richer content and offer an opportunity for co-branding with local stations. And, you know, in 2002, we looked at this and said, well, this is kind of a mess. You know, we're spending all this energy publishing in three different ways, and we have three different presentation layers. Um, what we really need to do is we need to collapse this into a system that really leverages our editorial time and gets us an opportunity to distribute to all these different places. Um, so an interesting part of the story is I pitched the idea with my boss at the time, Robert Holt, who's now at Microsoft. Um, we pitched the idea of, all right, we need to actually spend a bunch of time collapsing this and, and building kind of a, you know, an awesome system that takes care of all of this. Um, and at the time, uh, the VP, uh, her name is MJ Bear. She, um, she wanted us to do due diligence and explore all these different avenues and you know, content management systems like TeamSite and Vignette, which are all quite expensive. Um, and you know, we did all that due diligence. I wasn't convinced that that was the right route. In, fa in fact, I knew we could do a better job by building it in-house. And the inflection point was she quit. <laughs> uh, she left the job. And um, I basically said, great, let's go build it. There's no impediment anymore. Um, before things so, settle, let's get this built. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before the next person's in. And um, so we did that. We hunkered down. And that's where we really started thinking about the philosophies of you know, separate content from display and, and uh, content modularity and things like that. Um, so this is back in 2002. And it was partially driven by the idea that, right, as, in addition to everything we're doing here of collapsing these data systems, um, we're also doing a redesign of the presentation layer. If we're doing that, it's highly likely that in the future we're going to have another presentation layer, either a new one to replace the old one or an additional one. You know, and it's almost like this keeps happening. Yeah, it really does. It's this cyclical thing. You know, like, well, this is really great, but over time it's not so great anymore. We, we need something great, um, so let's throw out the old. And so we really said, all right, well, this, this presentation layer is going to go away too, so we really need a decoupling there. And that's where a lot of these COPE philosophies started uh, to soak in. And actually, we launched that CMS in November 2002, and it's still the centerpiece of NPR today. Holy um, cow. Yeah. Uh, not many CMSs last 10 or 11 years and, and uh, see that kind of success. So we take a lot of pride in that. I can imagine. And, well, I mean, it, it, it seems like that, that decoupling that you talked about, I mean, from, from a pure like software development and architecture standpoint, you know, that, that feels like the right thing to do. But, you know, what you mentioned, the idea of, of teasing apart the, the core, you know, the business assets that are this content that gets created and managed over time from the, the changing sort of ephemeral presentation. Teasing those things apart feels like it makes good business sense too. It's not just about architectural purity. It's a way to make sure that you don't have to, to dig up the foundation every time the house needs to get painted. Absolutely. And I will say it's not without some cost because there were certainly some uh, cultural battles that went into those discussions. Um, so 
you know, the teasing out, an example that I can offer is when we were doing this design, what we intentionally said is the story is the item. That was another philosophy of what we were doing. And um, so that's like the center of the, the uh, NPR system universe. And, uh, and we basically said the story is super thin. And generally speaking, in NPR, people think of the story as being a radio piece. And we said, no, no, no. Radio piece is an uh, unnecessary component of a story. Um, it's an enhancing and enriching part, but so are images, so is text, so are pull quotes, so is whatever else you want to imagine that you want to put in there, but they're not necessary. The only parts that are necessary are um, basically the title, a unique ID, a date, and I think we said a teaser. Um, that's it. That's all you need for a story. Interesting. Then from there, there's a hierarchical data model. Tell me if I'm getting too geeky. Oh, um, this, this, is, uh, uh, this is the kind of stuff I love. So we had a hierarchical data model where we basically had a story own what we called a resource. And a resource was any enhancing component of a story. And that resource was generic. And then the sub-hierarchy underneath that were the particulars, which would be text, uh, you know, images, videos, uh, whatever else, uh, external links, internal references. Transcripts, I think, just went live a little while ago. Transcripts is another one, for sure. Those were all enhancing, enriching components, but not necessary to have a presence on the site, you know, a story. And I know that you and, and others on this podcast have talked about, um, you know, blobs and was it blobs and uh, blobs and chunks, blobs and chunks. So um, we, we tried to be very surgical with this idea of, you know, we wanted to have everything be its own entity. We don't want these blobs of data. Um, in fact, every paragraph in the text are, they're stored separately in very distinct fields. Uh, you know, we, we really thought how we can manage this stuff in very modular ways so that, um, as you were saying, um, we're teasing it out so that our business can um, gain value down the road. And the controversial part is, especially in 2002, NPR is a journalism company focused on broadcast. Um, saying the radio or the, the audio piece is not essential is pretty controversial inside. It, take a little, it took a little massaging inside to um, get people to understand the power of this. And, you know, it took actually a number of years to really get everybody on board. I would imagine that, you know, some of the decisions that you made earlier, like, you know, saying that the story is, is central, even if every single story has a radio component for the first several years, there's sort of a, there's a stake in the ground just in the nomenclature that, you've been, that you get in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we really talked about stories and lists. Those were the two core concepts. And you, know, you start talking about it, and you know, eventually that becomes part of the vernacular and part of the culture. And really, you know, every story can belong to any number of lists, any number of types of lists, and the lists are really just aggregating mechanisms. Um, and that also cut against the culture as well in NPR because you think about morning edition for uh, you know, March 13th, you know, you think there's a rundown. There are 15 stories there. Um, that's really just another list. And, you know, it's not really a program. It is. You know, it happens to be that this name is Morning Edition, whatever. But it's a particular branded aggregation of stories, not necessarily this thing that is the, the primary means that people approach and find content. Right. It's not a radio program anymore. It's yep. a list. Um, and, you know, you can identify it by titles, but you got to think about it more generically. And, um, you know, that's when we started introducing, you know, broader set of topics, you know, news, music, and things like that. And it really created um, tremendous opportunity for NPR, actually. 
I think in the past probably, you know, maybe year or so, there have been a couple of things that have been written about the actual, like, long-term impact of it and what it's allowed NPR to do in terms of turning around new products that are targeted at, you know, emerging devices or platforms without having to go through the same sort of just profound, painful re-architecting of everything that a lot of other companies are having to do. Um, do, do you think that it, – it's interesting. Do you think that this set up um, NPR well for for taking advantage of mobile because of all the work that had already been in place? Uh, unquestionably, yes. Um, you know, following on from the story of the content management system creation – and, you know, I've talked a bunch about, you know, not being a web publishing tool, right? So um, we felt like we were building a content management system and we thought about it in terms of the content management edit editing tool is just another presentation layer and you can have n number of presentation layers. And so that actually gave a lot of, um, it gave us a lot of thought about, okay, well, if that's just one and the website is just one, we can have n number of these things and we just tack on new presentation layers, some of which have write capabilities and some don't. Um, so as that started to mature a little bit back in, was it 2004 or whenever RSS started to emerge, it was easy just to spin up another PHP file and have it render uh, RSS feeds and you pass in the parameters and it's going to be this topic or this program. And then shortly after that podcast started to emerge and we can just easily float an mp3 file in our rss feeds and you know do those kinds of things and um it was about 2007 when the music site npr music uh started to uh, we started to imagine that as a real portal and that's when we said all right that coupled with the fact that we have this single point of failure an oracle database um which we're kind of growing out of we actually need a different data uh redundancy model um we needed a you know a cluster of databases. We needed um, to be able to scale it, and NPR was a nonprofit, so we can't afford a million Oracle uh, servers. Um, so there were a couple of things that that had me thinking. Okay, we need another level of abstraction, and that's when we introduced the API. Um, and what that gave us an opportunity to do was um, basically put the NPR music development on a different trajectory, um, as well as now that everything is, or at least, you know, we were moving in the direction of having our sites fueled from the API, we can more easily abstract away the database underneath the API and swap in this, uh, a cluster of MySQL servers, uh, MySQL databases. And um, so we started thinking of the API in those terms, and then sometime after that, we opened it up. But after we opened it up, we realized, wow, we should be using that for other presentation layers like mobile sites and iPhones and iPads and feeding into like the Livio radio, you know, um, those uh, radio devices that are feeding NPR content. Uh, now it's going into cars. So, you know, all of this strategy, which started early in 2002, I think was in retrospect, we were lucky with, a, you know, having that kind of architecture. It put us in a great position to just tack on more presentation layers and allow them all to feed off of one central distribution channel, which was the API. No, it definitely makes sense. I mean, although I think it is interesting that the the real the rise of of mobile web traffic and especially apps, this idea that you know that a given business that has content might need you know this cluster of different ways that people can get to their stuff. 
I think it feels like that's that's broken a lot of existing sites and a lot of existing workflows and a lot of existing platforms that companies had built out. And I think that I think that sort of corresponds to where the huge spike in interest in the work that's been done on Cope um, really took off, because suddenly everyone was feeling just such a tremendous amount of pain around that issue. What you're describing is interesting because. It, it's not the same kind of story. You know, you'd been, your team had been working on this for a long time based on, you know, deeper needs than simply we need to go mobile or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, we, like I said, I think we were lucky to have had a series of challenges like financial challenges, can't afford vignette. <laughs> um, we were lucky in that we were doing a series of things all at once. And, you know, we knew that we were redesigning and we were likely to have to redesign again. It was a confluence of things that got us thinking early about um, needing this. We had no idea the iPhone was going to go nuts, right? I mean, if we had that kind of foresight, I I should have been betting on the stock market. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like we were very lucky. um, And I think we actually made a series of decent decisions thereafter that put us in a good position. When I hear about folks who... um, who have been, I guess, who weren't quite as uh, lucky to have that confluence of events and they have to go back and retrofit. Well, now the space is much more complicated and you're already embedded in your web publishing tool or whatever it is. So the the re-architecture at that stage is actually much more expensive and much more painful. And uh, it just seems like um, we did it at the right time, actually. Things were very lucky. You mentioned that the the actual editorial tools, the you know the things that the actual you know content creation people use, is just another presentation layer in that sort of approach. Um, you know how how did that side of things evolve? Because you know this this structured content approach that you're describing isn't necessarily like a natural fit or a natural transition for people who aren't used to say data modeling as their weekend hobby. Uh, data modeling is really at the center of it all. I, I felt it was critically essential to um, to start with a very clean data model. That, that was the starting point. How do we how do we imagine this content to be stored? And thinking about it in those very um, teased out uh, ways, you know. So text is very different than teaser, which is very different than images. And, you know, everything was really isolated. That's where the content modularity uh, part comes in. So that's where we started. And if you have that, well, that's just your data repository. And then any number of apps can hit against that. And, um, you know, we had the website hitting against that, but we also had this uh, suite of tools that could write to it. Um, They could also uh, access it as well. But, you know, then we started... um, over time, experimenting with areas of the website, writing different uh, user-related things to the database. And basically, you know, it starts with the database. That's all you have. And then every, everything else is either reading or writing or both to that database. And we just thought about it in those terms. Was the, was like the, the, the user experience aspects of, of building out those tools something that, you know, you, you were involved with? Or was that something that there was a different team of people trying to make the tools usable for this way of approaching things? Okay, so I'm actually really glad you brought that up because uh, I kind of glossed over that. Um, I, first, I want to be clear, and maybe this kind of gives people some hope. Um, when you say the team of people, uh, the total team that I can think of that executed on this entire um, CMS project back in 2002, I think it was about four people. 
Oh, this is like learning how bacon gets made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hope I don't disappoint anybody. Um, I, I think that'll encourage a lot of people, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it really started with, uh, you know, this first, it was this massive document that I put together that we used for due diligence to send out to vendors per the VP's request, right? So we, we had a, a vision that we kind of pieced together. Um, and that vision both encompassed, you know, what's the data structure is going to look like? What's it going to look like in terms of conceptually uh, the CMS or the content capture part? as well as um, directions for the website. And, uh, you know, obviously we brought it in-house. We didn't have the VP. I was, it was me and one other back-end developer at the time, and there was one front-end developer, and there was a designer, and then my boss. Uh, so that, that was kind of the team. We had a suite of editorial folks who, um, who contributed meaningfully to this. I don't want to discount them, but in terms of the engineering, that was it. Um, so me and the other back-end engineer, we wrote all the tools around this, uh, the content management system. But before we did that, we were heavily informed by the designer, and I was pretty involved in this as well. We did a series of usability tests. We took data from um, you know, both usage patterns of, those, uh, of our users online, you know, the uh, NPR.org users. Um, we took information about the three discrete ways that we publish. You know, we had the cold fusion system, the Java system, and the HTML files. What are the kinds of things we're building? Um, we we knew that actually in the in the mode right now at that moment 2002 um, we had very limited sets of assets it was very audio focused but we knew that things coming down the road were going to be much more expansive in terms of the available assets images and you know video is probably to come later but you know full text and we were hiring editors to on the online side specifically to build out those stories. So we were informed by all of those things and did a whole series of um, mock-ups and clickable prototypes for the editors and sat down with them and said, okay, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then here's the interesting part. We took all that data and we had to discount a fair amount of it because we thought that they were still thinking about it too much like NPR, right? Yeah, they, they were thinking, oh, you're building the new version of what we're used to. Yes, right. So... Um, we took on all that data. There were a lot of really great ideas and fundamental things that drove the direction of where we were going. But again, we had to think, uh, we're thinking bigger than this. We're thinking there's another design, there's this and that. So, um, we needed to discount a portion of that. And, um, yeah, so all of that kind of boiled into the content management system. And, and I think you've, you and Karen have talked about this a fair amount that, um, you can't just build tools as an engineer would build a tool, right? And, you're building your website to um, to have it be meaningfully useful to the website users. You need the same mindset when you're building the CMS. You want it to be, uh, you know, infused with the sensibilities that will make them effective at what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. So we tried to take all those sensibilities and make something that they would succeed with um, and evolve it over time. Especially with sites that have an existing. You know, there's an existing infrastructure and stuff like that. It's very easy to see those kinds of things and imagine that it's just insurmountable. You know, there's, there's definitely a lot of hurdles, you know, especially it feels like every year that passes, there's more, you know, there's more weight that's being put on a lot of the web properties that different companies have. But the idea is, you know, it doesn't necessarily take an army to do this. It seems like it's more of a, um, you know, the will inside of the organization to take this kind of path. Yeah, I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, first, generally, I agree. Um, I think 
the one area I would disagree in is that uh, the world is different now than 10 years ago. And I, I think, again, there was a, we were lucky to have gone down that route at the time that we did because, like you said, the weight is a lot lighter in 2002 than 2013. Um, but in every other capacity, I agree. And, you know, it's, you know, you have to have the commitment. You, and the commitment not only starts with, um, you know, a commitment to vision, but resourcing appropriately. You know, if you need these engineers to build this out, hire engineers. And uh, I'm a big believer in the idea that, um, you know, excellent engineers are going to be X times, you know, some people say 10 times more effective than average engineers. Um, so having really smart people who are executing on these things, who can really tease out what you're going for, what's the best way to execute on it, that's going to pay way more dividends than just hiring a bunch of people and, you know, throwing money at it. Um, you want the smart money. The, what you were describing earlier was it was a very cro a very cross functional team all working on these things. You know, you were talking about working in close conjunction with the designers who were planning out, you know, what the new visual appearance of the site was going to be and how it was going to operate. Working with the you know the content creators and the editorial team. You know, it wasn't just a matter of you know wireframes were thrown over the wall and you guys implemented it, which I think is one of the hardest scenarios for a lot of uh, a, a lot of people who build and implement to find themselves in these days. Yeah, it was kind of a scrum before scrum started taking off. I mean, <laughs> that's basically what it was. Um, it, it, the only way it could have succeeded was very close collaboration and everybody, you know, on board with the message. So I guess coming back to that initial question, you know, it, is it a little weird now to, to hear the stuff that you worked on turned into sort of the go-to the go-to go uh, example slide in everyone's presentations about structured content and reuse? Yeah, it still freaks me out. <laughs> uh, it's great. I, I love seeing it. I love talking to people about it. And you know, if there's a way that I can help people, uh, you know, I love doing that. Um, it, it's still a little uh, surreal to, um, you know, however many, I haven't even been at, at NPR for the last two and a half years. And um, so it's a little, it's interesting to see it coming through the tweet stream once in a while. I can imagine. Uh, well, well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you're, you're now at Netflix, actually, and you're the director of engineering for the Netflix API. How is that different? I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's an API and it deals with content, but, you know, it, it is really a big shift. Yeah, it's, um, it's a huge shift in certain categories, and it's actually quite similar in others. Um, the similarities are we're both media companies. Well, actually, Netflix considers ourselves technology company and media. Um, I think NPR should be striving if they are not already for the same thing. But in any case, um, media distribution, um, trying to get on multiple devices, reaching uh, consumers with rich multimedia experiences, those kinds of things are similar. Um, the scale uh, is fundamentally different. Um, you know, NPR, I think, is a reasonably decent scale operation. Um, but again, you know, by the time I left, it was, um, you know, my team was including some contractors around 20, I think. Um, here, the engineering team is about 600 or whatever that number is. Um, the scale of, you know, just the comparing the APIs, um, I think the NPR API is, you know, however many millions of requests a day, uh, maybe it's 100, maybe it's 50. I don't remember the exact number. Um, the API here does two and a half billion transactions a day with V. Um, and so, you know, what goes into those problems? Um, 
you know, solving those problems. It's a fundamentally different approach. And so architecturally at NPR, it was, even when I left, it was basically one team, uh, you know, broken out into different groupings, but uh, focused on one pipeline. And that pipeline was pretty interconnected. So, you know, you have the content management system that publishes into a cluster of databases. The cluster of databases are drawn on by an API, and the API distributes out the end number of destinations. And the, uh, the engineering team at NPR was building pretty much all of that, uh, 20 people or so. Here, it's highly distributed. It's an SOA model. Um, lots of engineering teams focusing on specialized tasks. And my team does not really store any data. We don't really have any uh, um, editorial tools or anything like that. We're basically a broker that takes data from other people's systems and pass it across HTTP over to devices in people's homes. Um, so the core responsibility for this team is uh, you know, um, making sure that we have a, a solid distribution pipe, scaling the system effectively with the growth of the, of the company and the growth of the system, and ensuring resiliency. Those are the, the three key responsibilities I've laid out for the team. Whereas NPR, it's building a lot of features and presentation layers or... Um, you know, managing a CMS. So the scale, I think, is really at the core, fundamentally different, and that drives a lot of the differences uh, in other categories. Yeah, I think, you know, at Netflix, you guys are responsible for, what I think, a double-digit percentage of evening internet traffic or something something like that. Yeah, it's 33%. Right? That, that, that's definitely a statistic not many people can, uh, can lay claim to. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways that Netflix has massive scale. That's one of them. Uh, you know, the two and a half billion transactions a day, but we're also on 800 different device types. It means it's kind of mind boggling when you think about some of these numbers. So. I, I am just blown away that there are that many kinds of devices to be on. I mean, you know, it, it I guess it makes sense, but it's just, it, it is staggering when you think about that. The, the, the device proliferation that we're seeing is, is really, really difficult to keep up with. Yeah. And the scary part is it's not done. Um, <laughs> You know, it's your fridge is going to have a screen on it. Why not have Netflix there, right? Um, uh, basically, this is the beginning of it, actually, in in, uh, in my view. So, how has it been? How has it been different, just philosophically? Like at NPR, I think a lot of the you know case for the APIs about very public distribution of a lot of different of a lot of information. Um, but with Netflix, it's, it's different. You know, it's, it's basically your, the API is, you know, it's part of a tool chain that allows you to provide a particular service to customers. You know, it, it, are there ripple effect differences in, in how the two get approached? You know, I actually think you've mischaracterized NPR a little bit. Um, even by the time I left, I was starting to position it differently. And I think that's still the case. So, um, you know, Javon Marathi and, um, He's the the PM there now for the API and the rest of the folks there. I think they focus intently on internal consumption. Um, they still have the public API and they still use it for a, a um, distribution mechanism to the member stations. But an overwhelming percentage of the traffic to the API is from NPR properties. It's not from the general public domain. Um, and then the next category would be the stations and then to the general public. So I think in that regard, it's very similar to Netflix. Um, now, the, the percentages and the numbers are very different. Um, so I think whatever their percentage is, 60 70% is NPR 
um, 99.9 plus percent of the traffic is from Netflix ready devices here. Um, and we still have a, a public API, but that sees an incredibly small percentage of the traffic. Then I guess that is, I guess that is sort of a perception thing then, you know, I mean, I, I had always, I've always heard of a, a lot about the context of a, you know, of, of, a public open API being there. And, and that's actually a question that, you know, I think a lot of people have. It's, well, if my business doesn't make sense for, you know, putting out a giant fire hose of all of my stuff to the world, how can I really leverage this stuff? And I think that that's part of it. You know, you don't have to think about it as just, you know, the, the all you can eat buffet of our stuff. It can be used for internal purposes too. Yeah, I'd go a step further and I'd say um, the majority, in fact, the overwhelming majority of value cases of API use will be the internal consumption. Um, and this is from my background at NPR and at Netflix, um, but also I talk to a lot of people in the space. I see other companies like Evernote and The Guardian and The New York Times and whoever else. Um, they all have a very similar pie chart where the overwhelming consumption is internally. Um, so I actually think that we are seeing a, a shift in the marketplace towards internal consumption. People are looking at their businesses differently and saying, how can we get on all these different devices? Let's not worry as much about trying to piggyback on developers and their free time in their garage. And let's dedicate our resources to building these things on our own. How do we get there? Let's build an API so we can leverage the distribution rather than building one-offs all the time. For either individuals, you know, developers or, you know, who are, who are looking at dealing with the massive explosion of devices and channels, what, what kind of advice would you have for them? You know, what, what kind of, you know, what kind of major pitfalls would you tell them to steer clear of? Uh, to steer clear of? Um, well, definitely steer clear of uh, lots of one-off development um, and steer clear of thinking, depending on who you, who you are and what your business is, steer clear of thinking of, uh, of yourself as not being a software company. Um, I think that's, to me, that's the number one thing. Um, if you can reimagine whatever your business is and think of yourself as being a technology company, or at least partially a technology company, then you're going to dedicate the resources to that. Um, and if you're dedicating the resources to that, then you're going to have smart people who are thinking about these problems in the right way. And you know, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all device for, you know, for everybody. But I think if you have good people thinking about it, you're going to end up with highly leverageable uh, content management or distribution channels, and you're going to end up being much more nimble than you would otherwise. Um, so it's probably sidestepping your question, <laughs> but uh, I don't know how else to say it because, you know, even at Netflix, um, we have very clearly stepped away from trying to be a one-size-fits-all for reaching, you know, all the platforms we're hitting because, uh, you know, that device was, you know, the REST API device was, uh, you know, a one-size-fits-all model that we used for quite a while and it felt like the right thing to do. But my view on that is that that's a tool, that's a pragmatic way of approaching it and when that tool runs its course, we need to move on to something that has greater pragmatic value. Um, so I wouldn't be beholden to any given technology. I'd be beholden to smart technologists who you trust to make good decisions. And it sounds like, you know, an, an important part of that is is having a really clear, you know, coherent grasp of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and what the long-term goals are, too. 
Absolutely. Yep. And that, that goes right in with the commitment, right? If you're committed to this, then think about how this is going to play out in five years and start planning for that. Well, I, I want to say thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I, I hope that we'll cross paths again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I really appreciate it, and yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Me and another engineer, when we were doing a modeling exercise, we really got caught up on what to call that story, Adam, in the database. And we debated about this for way too long. And her stance was, uh, let's call it page, you know, meaning like a web page or some page representation. And I wanted nothing to do with that uh, because I thought that was too bound to a given presentation concept. Um, I really wanted something way more generic. So I started throwing out ideas like object or you know, something that really didn't have a whole lot of meaning. But something abstract. Totally abstract, exactly. Um, and we, deb- we went around this time and time again. And ultimately, uh, what we decided on was thing. So the central table in the system, and I think it still is the case today, is called thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we did that specifically so that we could not be worried about is it going to end up on a on a mobile app or on a or, you know an led on a radio right which doesn't really have a concept of page or anything else it's just here's this thing we're distributing it out and that's it